over to you now. Thank you, Peter, and good morning, everyone. Now, the passage is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, and it's very familiar. And God spoke to all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And as we think about this, let's pray. Now, Father God, we thank you that you've given us the word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, we will understand it. And we pray that by the power of the same spirit, we will apply it to our lives. For Christ our Savior's sake. Amen. Uh, the next three weeks, we'll be considering the Ten Commandments, and in particular, uh, the first three of these. Uh, they're sometimes known as the Decalogue. Of course, one of the most famous sections of the entire Bible. They sort of stand alone in splendor. Uh, there was an episode once in the United States some years ago where a, uh, a judge wanted to carve them in stone. In fact, he did so, and he placed them in the foyer of the, uh, of the building in which the courts operated. It was objected to by the humanists and removed but nonetheless, he thought the Ten Commandments were foundational to the society uh, in which uh, he was living. They are very familiar, or they actually were very familiar. Not so now, and I have evidence for this. Since the 1990s, I have been asking uh, groups of uh, theological college students coming into college do they know the Ten Commandments? Not just asking, but getting them to actually write down the Ten Commandments, even in a abbreviated form, to demonstrate that they knew the Ten Commandments. Uh, to my surprise, I have to say, uh, the vast majority were not able to give me all ten. Indeed, there was one man who could not give me one, even though you would have thought you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, may have come into his mind. This is a significant change, for it is true to say that for previous generations within Christian groups, at least the Ten Commandments and beyond, the Ten Commandments were mightily familiar. Uh, they were on the church walls. They were in part of the catechisms that young people would learn. They were part of scripture teaching at school. People would know the Ten Commandments and probably be even able to recite the Ten Commandments but this is no longer true. Are they, as the judge obviously felt in my story, are they part of the sort of the law of humanity? Are they for the whole human race or are they specifically for Israel? Is there a sort of a, a, an embeddedness to them that means that they're for Israel, but not for everybody is one of the major questions. And that means, do they matter to you as well? Now, as we progress through this this morning, I'm going to use very, very quickly, I'm going to use uh, six headings. Uh, I'm saying so because I believe I have a highly motivated and highly intelligent audience. That's what I believe. So here we are. The six headings are as follows. Embedded, disputed, surrounded, interpreted, translated, and directed. Okay, here we go. And I'm not forgetting we're dealing with the first commandment. So first of all, embedded. 
You'll notice how these commandments begin. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, he identifies himself, even using the special name that uh, he gave to Moses. And he identifies himself as the one who brought them out of their house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He is addressing a particular group of people the ones that he saved and presumably their descendants, but he is addressing Israel as he speaks. So these 10 commandments, this Decalogue is, if you like, embedded, embedded in salvation history, embedded in the way in which God has been operating. And therefore we need to give them a context. We can't just immediately take them and use them as our own. Second, they're disputed. Uh, as you may well know, there's a dispute in uh, Christian circles, at least, about grace and law. Uh, when I was uh, but a wee uh, child, um, we were told by my Sunday school teacher that God told people in the Old Testament that salvation was by keeping the law. Uh, and then that didn't work. So he sent Jesus to save us from our sins because the law didn't work. Uh, I've never forgotten this. Uh, she was about 14 or 15, I guess, and I was about six. Uh, but that was an indelibly impressed in my mind moment. She was expressing, of course, the view that uh, the New Testament is all about grace. God saves you apart from the law. Indeed, there's truth in that. God saves you apart from the law. Uh, but therefore, the law has no relevance any longer. The Ten Commandments don't matter. This is a dispute. Uh, it's interesting to observe that, as I said, this is quite recent. This is not according to the main line of Protestant thinking down through the years, let alone Catholic thinking down through the years. Uh, indeed, in the Protestant Reformation, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and all the rest, Thomas Cramner, all the rest made sure that the Ten Commandments were very well known indeed. Uh, and they regarded them as having ongoing significance, even though these were the ones saying you're saved by grace, not by law. So what's happened? They're embedded. They are disputed. They're surrounded. They're surrounded. Now, we have to know, and this is particularly important for you guys, because the word law is so significant for you, that the word law is not really a good translation for... Uh, what we see in the Old Testament, the word Torah. Uh, it's better thought of as more or less teaching or instruction, teaching or instruction. Uh, yes, it's got a legal connotation to it. That's true. But the Torah, for example, was the first five books of the Old Testament, which contains, if you know your Bible, contains lots and lots of stories, for example, as well as whole heaps of legal material. So law means teaching, instruction, with, if you like, a, a legal bite to it. These five books, as I say, include much narrative. But if you come to look at something like the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, I think you've got to understand sort of three things about the way in which law operated and operates in the Bible as a whole. First of all, you need to go to what I call the heart of the law, the heart of the law which is the great commandment, 
you shall love God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus brought these two commandments together. They are found in the Old Testament, but he brought them together. And you'll see that referred to in Matthew 22, verse 37. Love God, love your neighbor. In other words, the beating heart of the law is love. Uh, it's no good saying, well, here's the law, here's the legislation, here are the infinite number of clauses and subclauses and all the rest that go to make up so much of modern law. If the person who's meant to be keeping the law does not love God, love their neighbor. In other words, law is based on the moral state of the nation and the infinite complexity of keeping laws will not actually help much if people will not keep the law because they love God, love their neighbor. And that's true for the Old Testament, of course, where it comes from. When you come to the Decalogue, it's more like the principles of the law. So you get the heart of the law in love, you get the principles of the law in the Decalogue. They are special. Uh, God gives them at Mount Sinai. Uh, he calls them the 10 words. And uh, there is about them, a, a, they're, they're meant to be in a sense comprehensive, they're meant to be a standalone. So you have the love and the principles and the principles have got to be interpreted in the light of the law of love. But that, even that is not enough. And so surrounding the law is what I like to call case law. Uh, if your ox falls into the ditch on a Sabbath day, are you allowed to get the ox out of the ditch, even though it's the Sabbath day and you're told not to work on the Sabbath day. That's sort of if this, then that. Uh, yes, the law says you shall not kill. Does that mean there can be no soldiers? Uh, the law says you shall not kill. Does that mean suicide is wrong? Now, all these sort of things are dealt with, to a certain extent, by the case law, which, of course, is never comprehensive because new, new situations are continually arising. And meet the new situations, you need the law of love. What does love tell you? What are the principles, the guiding principles of law? Then that is applied to the case law. This is how I see the Old Testament working at least. So the law is embedded. It's disputed, should we keep it? It's surrounded by lots of other material. So the Decalogue is not a standalone. Now, the next point to make is, it's interpreted. That is to say, one of the, the, the absolutely fundamental points about reading your Bible at all is that the Bible interprets the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. That you must compare passage with passage in order to understand the whole. And so it is with the Ten Commandments. One of the problems with uh, taking them out and putting them in granite and placing them in the courtroom or hanging them on the church wall or something like this is that it's so easy to treat them as though they don't have a proper context. Part of the context, of course, is the attitude of Jesus to the law. Uh, and uh, it's important to notice for a start that in the great Sermon on the Mount, he takes the Ten Commandments, or various of them, and he interprets them. And in so doing, what he does is he endorses them. He says the law will never pass away. He endorses them and he, he shows how, how far they reach. 
you shall not murder means you will not even be angry. He brings them, in case there was any doubt, he brings them into the heart of people. He says the law is not just simply a matter of conduct, it's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of the heart as to what's going on internally. And so Jesus uh, creates, if you'd like, not a second law, but he brings out the significance of the first law. And in so doing, he's more or less telling us what sin is. Now, the commandments do tell you what sin is. You don't need Jesus to tell you this. But Jesus shows in an unmistakable and, and memorable way what sin is and how deep it is in the human heart. So we read the law interpreted through Jesus. Embedded, disputed, surrounded, interpreted, translated. What do I mean by that? Well, again, uh, this applies to the whole Old Testament revelation. It's to be always read for us, translated into the categories of the New Testament. Uh, I always love this example, but in uh, the, the end of the book of Amos, for example, uh, Amos says that the, that the kingdom of David is going to be restored and the empire of David is going to be restored. When we come to the New Testament, it takes that very passage from Amos and it says, yes, and that is happening. Look at the way that people all around the world, the Gentiles, are becoming Christians. That is the restoration of the kingdom of David. In other words, you've, you've done what, to, if a musician starts with tinkle, tinkle, little star, and then in 20 variation builds it up into something like a symphony, it, that's what the New Testament has done. It's taken the, it hasn't changed the revelation, but it has translated the revelation into the world of Jesus Christ. That's the best way I can put it. So when we're reading the Ten Commandments, yes, they were addressed to Israel. The Lord said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That, that's not us. No. But if you translate that into who it is, we are the ones who have been brought out of slavery, out of the slavery of sin and death, and we've been brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the great, the, the commandments arise out of that redemptive moment, but now they've been translated into the full orchestra, into the full noise of, the, uh, of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so it's not as though the Ten Commandments are irrelevant to us, but they are to be seen in the light of the whole, of the whole uh, revelation of God through Jesus. And so they're translated. It's interesting that in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments are said to be that which will make all the nations uh, uh, stand back and say, what nation is this? that has such a remarkable law. This nation is going to be exalted uh, because of its laws, according to Deuteronomy. This gives us a hint indeed, and I think it's true in Romans 2, for example, that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are not just relevant to Israel, but not just relevant even to the Christians, but they stand indeed uh, to make the consciences of the nation, of the nations and of the nation. It wasn't so wrong, I thought it was a bit odd, but it wasn't so wrong to put the Ten Commandments in the courtroom 
for they do indeed speak not just to Israel, not just to Christians, but they do indeed represent the will of God uh, for uh, human beings. And so once more, we come to the beginning. And God spoke all these words on Mount Sinai to Moses, and then Moses, they are transcribed onto, uh, onto tablets, two tablets of stone, and uh, he brings them down from the mountain and they start, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord of God who has redeemed you. These commandments are not addressed in the first instance uh, just to everyone, although I believe they are applicable to everyone. They are addressed to those who have been redeemed. My Sunday school teacher was fundamentally wrong about the Old Testament. It's not addressed to people who need to be redeemed. And if you do this, then you will be saved. They're addressed to people who are saved. It is only after the salvation that God did through Moses that the commandments are given. Here are the words preeminently, although not exclusively, addressed to the saved to tell them now that they belong to God, this is how you are to live. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me. Now you could read this as a sort of a declaration of monotheism, that uh, there is only one God of the world. I don't think it's quite that yet, although that is true. He's not disputing the evidence that there are many, many gods amongst the nations. He doesn't believe that they're real gods, but the nations have their gods. Israel, the people of God, will have exclusively one God. They will not be worshiping many gods, here they have just one God. And this God is me. And it's not just you all shall have no other gods before me, but every one of them shall have no other gods before me. In a sense, this commandment is the whole of the ten. Once you've said this, the others simply flow from this. For once it is perfectly clear to you that God and God alone is Lord, then you will wish to live in a way that he directs you and his directions are in what follows. This defines sin and calls us to obedience. And so this commandment is directed at us. And I suppose the way we would put it in particular is to say that we have been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ and because we have been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the boss. He is the one in charge. And we would say furthermore that commandments and the Ten Commandments are not restrictions on your freedom. They are the presuppositions of your freedom. Or if you like, you have been set free and now to walk in the path of freedom to walk in the path in which you will be restored into the image of God is to keep the, the Ten Commandments and in particular to keep this commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so as we conclude, I ask 
does this matter to you? What of yourself? Can you say, have you said to yourself, I have no other gods but this one, or to put it in New Testament categories, that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is that the confession of your heart? And if it is the confession of your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then what evidence is, it, is there for it? For if he is your Lord, then your whole life is directed towards pleasing him. That's the business of your life, is to please the Lord. That way, arising from salvation, is the road of freedom. And so this great old first commandment this morning is a challenge both to Christian and non-Christian. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? If he is your Lord, do you live your life seeking to please him in all things? Now we're going to pause at this point. There's a few moments. And uh, if there are any questions, then please uh, let me know. And I will try to offer some explanation. If I can't, I'll just talk a lot. And that'll be my way of answering. Yeah. Uh, perhaps, Peter, I might uh, start with one you uh, said just towards the end there about, talked about presuppositions of freedom. Most people would not see the Ten Commandments or any commandments having anything to do with freedom. Can you just unpack that a little bit, please? Uh, yes. Um, when you say most people, I presume you mean most of our contemporaries, because our contemporaries have lost their minds. Most people down through history have recognised that there is a connection. Uh, my way of putting it is to say, um, uh, you, if you play tennis without boundaries and without a net, you might be having a good game of something, but you're not playing tennis. Uh, it, playing tennis is freedom, but it's done within the boundaries set by the game itself. Or as the great poet uh, uh, Robert Frost once said, uh, modern poetry is playing tennis without a net. Uh, the, the presuppositions of our freedom are boundaries, are, are law, if you like. And so Lord, good law delivers freedom to us. Now, one of the things about the Ten Commandments is that they are designed by God to recreate us in the image, in his image, to make us the people we should be, to make us the people we should be, where we will find our true freedom. Uh, a train does not have freedom if it jumps the tracks and skips across the meadow. A train has freedom by going down the tracks. In other words, your freedom is found in being the true you. And the true you is a servant of the living God. Uh, from uh, Ian, if Ten Commandments addressed to the saved, is that a reason not to make them all legally binding? For example, uh, should committing adultery still be a criminal offence? Uh, the seventh commandment. Uh, not according to the New Testament, I think. If you translate them into the categories of the New Testament, it could be a criminal offence, but it's directed particularly to the, um, uh, to the saved community. Uh, th that you would try to make this a criminal offence, as has been done and is still done in some quarters, uh, is to use, I think, crime in the wrong, to use the criminal justice system in the wrong place. Uh, rather than making it a criminal offence, I think we've got to address the question of the underlying morality of society and, 
and creating a sense of loving the law for what it is and keeping the law. Uh, well, like my father used to play golf on his own and he would still count every stroke. Now we need people, we need a society that will keep the law because it loves the law uh, rather than uh, uh, having criminal offences. Uh, Justin asks, uh, Jesus tells the rich young ruler to inherit eternal life. You know the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not commit murder. In translating the Old Testament, see Jesus is saying that to be saved, you must follow the Ten Commandments. How does this come into the picture? How does grace come into the picture? Thank you. Uh, yes, the rich young ruler is a special case. Uh, rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus looked upon him and loved him, it says in the text. Very interesting indeed. Uh, I think what we see there is Jesus using his pastoral skills, if you like, to, to sort that man out. Uh, the man comes to him. The man is in love with money. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. You must make your choice. The man claims to keep the Ten Commandments. He actually claims that he keeps the law fully and completely. Jesus then very, very skillfully exposes his claim for what it is by saying, okay, give away all your money and come follow me. So it's not in a sense it is accepting if you were per if you perfectly kept the law you would not need to be saved uh, that was the claim the man is making jesus exposes the claim for what it is and says come follow me that is his chief business uh, i hope that's helpful and i had one new message uh, why these particular laws and not some others and what is the policy behind these laws the reason for making these laws uh, these laws, well, it's interesting. I think these are comprehensive. I think these do touch on the whole of human life. That's, they're intended to. The first four are directed towards our loving God. The second four are towards loving neighbour. I think they, as I said, they need to be accompanied by case law, uh, an ever-expanding uh, set of case laws, if you like, uh, which which take the principles of the law, and um, now you may maybe you can think of another that the eleventh commandment that should go in, or the twelfth commandment. I'd find it hard to think what that would be: uh, respect for human life, respect for sexuality, uh, respect for speech, uh, respect for property, um, and finally, a law directed to the human heart: do not covet. Um, there may be other laws that you can think of that you could add. It's hard to think what they are. I think that's more likely to be covered by the case law that then flowed out of the Ten Commandments. Another question here. If I am to serve uh, God above all, how does this work when I serve my non-Christian boss or client? Yes, thank you. It is because you serve God above all that you can best serve your non-Christian boss or client. As you know, the New Testament world was a world of slavery. And it's interesting to see uh, the Apostle Paul uh, addressing Christian slaves. He says to them, if you can get out of slavery, do so. If you can't, that doesn't define you. Don't allow the fact that you are a slave to define you. But on the other hand, I want you to work for your master in a way that goes beyond what he asks. I want you to work for him from the heart 
And I want him to see in you what Christ has done for you. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what Paul is saying. That is to say, our duty as workers is to work, and this is the New Testament ethic here, is to work for the boss in a way that goes beyond even the requirements, uh, depending on if they're not stupid or not, but, but is, uh, is that shows love for neighbor, even including the boss. Furthermore, and this it seems to me is extraordinarily important in, in, in a capitalistic age, the business, of, the business of banking, for example, is not just to make the, the shareholders rich. The business of banking is first of all to serve the customers. Uh, and it's time that we got back in all our commercial operations to recognize that our first duty is towards the customer or the client and um, the, 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 the professional ethos of the law, which used to be the case, I hope it still is, is that you, your duty is towards the person who's come to you and you will give that person your very best. That comes straight out of love your neighbor as yourself, as far as I can see. I think professionalism has come from a Christian view of the world. Uh, what did Jesus' Sermon on the Mount reveal about how commandments have been interpreted wrongly or mischievously up to that point? Well, as you know, all law um, succumbs to the famous loopholes and the famous, well, does the law really say that? And look, it means that this case, that case, that case is not covered by the law. Therefore, what do you mean here? The whole business that we all go through as human beings, I mean, you don't even have to teach it to children. Two or three-year-old children will question what you say to them and say, well, do you really mean this? Do you really mean that? What the Sermon on the Mount says is cut out that nonsense. Recognize that the law goes to your heart. It's no good saying, well, I didn't murder them. I was very angry with them, but I didn't murder them. Your anger was murder. So stop mucking around and recognize that the law that God himself, through his word, lays claim to your, your entire inner being. Mm. Uh, Peter, can I ask another question that's come through? Uh, many say that Christians um, pick and choose which laws they apply. For example, they they ignore laws about not eating shellfish. What? Any comments? Yeah, sure. This is the importance of the Bible interprets the Bible. Uh, the as I said, the, the word Torah is not exactly what you and I might think of as law. It's really teaching direction, and it is made up i haven't given we did only have 20 minutes i haven't given every one of these things that i've given you is worth a book you realize so uh there are bits to the law which are intended to lay down a pattern for the salvation that was to follow so there's a whole whole swags of the law are about the uh, the priesthood and the temple and sacrifices and all that sort of thing these parts of the law are essential to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus does. They're not to be cut out of your Bible. You're meant to read them and study them in order to understand Jesus. But when Jesus comes, of course, they are fulfilled. And since they've been fulfilled, they're no longer to be practiced in real life. Now, that's the teaching of the Bible. The Bible itself enables you to see, uh, for example, that we can eat pork, and I'm very glad we can. Okay. All right. Well, we're just uh, just about out of time. So um, thank you very much, everyone, for being with us today. And uh, next
Next week, Peter will continue his series on the Ten Commandments, uh, looking at uh, the idea of superstition beyond superstition. So thanks so much for being with us again, and we'll see you at the same time next week. See you later.